Friday, November 29th, 2013. This is the Hermetic Hour. I'm your host, Poke Runyon, and tonight we present a discussion on the 24th path on the Hermetic Kabbalah's Tree of Life. And this is the path attributed to death the right-hand guardian or gateway to Tipperith with the devil on the left side, Ashpath 26. Now these two gates are considered soul-testing challenges to the central sun and the realm of the solar logos represented by Tipperith. Our texts will be Garrett Knight's Practical Guide to Kabbalistic Symbolism and John Michael Greer's Paths of Wisdom. This path will give us an opportunity to discuss the nature and meaning of Hermetic Enlightenment, the concept of individual consciousness, being eternal consciousness, and what Eliphas Levy really meant when he wrote, Death is man's way of conquering immortality. So, if you want to live forever, tune in and we'll get a head start on it. Now, first let's get ourselves on the map here. This 24th path leads from the sphere of Netzach, the sphere of nature, number seven appropriately, and that is on the right side of the tree. That's the tree as the side of mercy and, and as opposed to the side of severity over on the left. And it leads up to, to breath, of course, the solar sphere, number six, in the center of the tree. Now, the letter of the path, Hebrew letter, is Nun, which is the fish. The name of God attributed is El, or Al, that's a left The astrological correspondence is Scorpio, the scorpion. The tarot correspondence is the 13th trump, death. The esoteric title is the child of the great transformers, lord of the gates of death. And the mythological principle is meeting with the powers of death. The experiences of the path, images of death, burial and decay, travel through deep water, or through blood, visions of the dead and of the future. I'm reading, by the way, from John Michael Brewer's book on page 182 here. The entities on the path are skeletons and other death figures and cold-blooded animals. Magical images and arch of a deep greenish-blue color bearing the letters Nun in brilliant white on its keystone. The door in the arch bears the image of the 13th Trump, the Grim Reaper. Now, this path does not mean that you have to die to get to temporary. That's not the purpose of it. 
the purpose of the path is for you to try to come to an understanding in as much as we blind mortals are given to understand such things, to give you some kind of an understanding and make some sort of accommodation with death, which has often been said that the uninitiated fear death, and the initiated, although they don't welcome it, at least they realize that death is not the end, it is, in many ways, the beginning. We'll try to get that concept across tonight uh, in, from a hermetic perspective. And the other path over on the other side leads up from Hod, which is the sphere of the intellect, and the sphere of the, uh, the rational, uh, creative, and constructive mind of man, mercurial sphere of Hod, leading up to Tipperet from the other side that we've already done, is the devil. And these two paths, angular paths, leading up from either side, the devil and death. And then, of course, in the middle, there is temperance, the middle way, so to speak, leading to Tipperet in the center of the tree. Now, in order to understand what these paths are leading to, in order to understand the paths themselves, we have to have some understanding of what they're leading to. And that means we have to have some understanding of the tree of life itself. And that means that we're going to have to go back to the Sifri Yatsura and old Gershom Shalom, who said in all of his wisdom that the Kabbalah is Pythagorean. And what that means in short, quick terms is that breath is the solar center of the known physical universe that we inhabit here, which in the days when this tree of life was created was centered in our own solar system. And even though, even though our solar system at the time of the Kabbalah's creation was thought of as geocentric, we, we have to realize that, that Europeans on all across the temperate zone the great god of our known universe was represented by the sun. And now this was not the case with the original Hebrews, the Arabs, and uh, um, some areas down in the, in the tropics. This was not the case. Uh, in fact, uh, the Middle Eastern peoples uh, in those very, very hot regions, the sun was really not their friend. So they were more oriented toward the moon and the planet Venus. And in the case of the Jews, who to which we contribute the structure of the Kabbalah, they were originally um, venerating the planet Saturn. And that's why they have their holy day on Saturday. And they had a lunar calendar and a sun. And even ancient Canaan, which is 
uh, the source of much of what's come down to us in the Bible, even they thought the sun was a relatively minor deity, and so they were they, they, being patriarchal, they made the sun a goddess instead of a god, called her the torch of the gods, as it were. So what we're seeing in Tipperath, even though this arrangement was uh, developed by um, by uh, Jewish scholars, rabbis, in the early Middle Ages, does not go back too much further than about 300 AD, actually. That's the separated Sarah. That's what the structure of this, of this, what we call the Tree of Life, was originally laid out. And so what we have here is at the outset, we have a mixture of the Greek, Greek mythology and biblical mythology. Even in the rabbinical Kabbalah, we have that. This is more a creation of Alexandria, and they had a large Jewish community in Alexandria, by the way. This is more a creation of Alexandria drawing upon the Assyrian Tree of Life design. Yeah, more Alexandrian than it is than it is coming from Jerusalem, shall we say. So what we have here in Tipperath is the sphere of the solar logos. And I don't mean that that necessarily has to be Christian, because the uh, the sun, Christianity, of course, was not originally a solar cult. Christianity was originally uh, Jewish, and we discussed this before at some length, that... Uh, is uh, Paul had a uh, had a mind originally to uh, to spread Christianity to the Gentiles and and uh, James the brother of Jesus was running the Church of Jerusalem and uh, wanted to keep Christianity very 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 much kosher and uh, Paul because he. Uh, felt that uh, keeping the less uh, uh, exempted the Gentiles from circumcision and certain other uh, Jewish requirements, we weren't going to be able to spread the gospel to the to the European world. And so Paul had this debate with uh, James in Jerusalem, which was James's turf. And James won the debate, and I, I have a suspicion that Paul uh, may have been responsible for turning James into the Sanhedrin, and James, of course, got he got thrown out of a three-story window and broke his back, and while he was lying there, they stoned him to death, and that was the end of Jewish Christianity, by the way. And so from then on out, Christianity was on its way to becoming a solar cult. But before that, we had the Mithraic cult, which was very, very popular in Rome. Constantine, in fact, was a Mithraic. And we had the Saul Invectus cult. And we had, of course, Greco-Egyptian solarism. Serapis uh, was uh, 
had a had a solar uh, spectrum, and so uh, the Tipperah is the sphere of the dying and resurrected God, whether it's Christ or Dionysus or, or Apollo or whoever you want to put there, uh, a solar entity. And it is the sphere of transformation, the sphere of sacrifice, the sphere of of, uh, of enlightenment. Uh, and uh, therefore we have us on this one side, we have the devil coming up from Hod, from Mercury, and that's very appropriate because Mercury, uh, Hod, is a sphere where, uh, well, if you want to, it's the sphere of the mad scientist. And he doesn't care what he creates as long as it's ingenious and as long as it, and as long as it, uh, uh, you know, it creates spectacular results. It could be good, it could be bad. It's usually bad. And and so the devil is very appropriate coming up from hard. And uh, how does one overcome the devil? Well, we've already discussed that in our, in our lecture on the 26th path. So now we have over in this, coming up from the sphere of nature, the sphere of the goddess, the sphere of of universal fertility and and germination, and the sphere of 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 the flow and harmony of nature, the green ray, if you will, and we published the green ray, of course, and uh, this path goes up from Detsak to Tiberth, and it's appropriately death. Because everything in nature dies and is then again reborn in some form. Now, obviously, to travel this path, we're not going to have to die, but we need to find an understanding of death. Now, let us mention from a practical point of view that uh, this is partially a boat working. So consequently, we will mount the boat down in the temple of Malkuth. The boat will spread its wings. We'll fly on our way all the way up to Netzach. We'll land on on the goddess's island in, in Netzach. And, and then from there, we'll make our way on foot, by boat, whatever, uh, along the path uh, of death. And, of course, then we'll return. After we've gotten to Tipperith and had the Tipperith experience, we will return and once again mount our our, our boat, and which will spread its wings and fly us back to Malkuth. That's the way we're going to do it. But uh, let's confront death, and death in terms of Tipperith. Now, one thing. Uh, John Michael Greer is, uh, you know, he, he's um, um, he's a friend of the OTA, but he's not a member, and yet he has here in 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 his uh, end of his book here on uh, the end of the article on um, on death, he has um, the image of death is harmonious, elegant. It comes from Tipperith not from the kingdom of shells. To the magician, certainly, death is a known quantity. 
and the awareness of death's nearness a useful tool. And from the standpoint of the magical Kabbalah tool, the cycle of death and rebirth can be seen as a model for the opening of the veil, a radical change beyond which lies a new life. Very interesting because in our version of the tree of life and this the psychic center or chakra if you will of Tipareth, we place the vegetation spirits and the ancient Phoenician green man Baal and who dies every year by the way and we place his brother Moot the god of death the original Grim Reaper, and the two of them together, brothers, the two of them are in the pyramid, the pyramid of the sun. They're inside the pyramid together, bow on the throne, and Moog standing right behind him. And this is very appropriate. And as you progress through the seasonal ceremony cycle in the lower grades, Moog appears as a villain. In fact, he was the he was the um, inspiration for Skeletor. And if any of you people remember, I think some of you probably do, Mattel's line of, of uh, action figures and also a very, very nice fantasy movie called Masters of the Universe. And it was based on Canaanite mythology. And Skeletor was very, very, very well played by by uh, Frank Langella. Skeletor uh, is the god of death, and both in Masters of the Universe and in our seasonal ceremonies, uh, Moat or Skeletor is a very sinister character. Obviously, he's the god of death. You know, I am Moat, thy royal brother, prince of darkness, death, and gloom. Thou hast lived thy fruitful season. Now it is time to seek the tomb. Yeah, uh, but when you get to Perez, and even the path, you be realize that Moat is really not that sinister a character. He's in a somber, gloomy sort of way. He's uh, he's your friend and your guide. That's an enlightened perspective that we go into. So, at this point, let us try to understand what, in the Hermetic tradition and in Hermetic philosophy, is trying to get a handle on death. Well, the first thing we need to understand is that in hermetic philosophy we operate on astrological cycles. Now remember that astrology is the bedrock of hermetic science. So we operate through astrological cycles and we very, very much follow the doctrine of reincarnation. Now I'm not going to tell you that reincarnation is absolutely the truth or anything like that. Uh, I'm perfectly willing to concede that uh, you can have an ancestral line 
you might even reincarnate in the past, or you might you might manifest an ancestor in the future. I don't know. I you know I have to admit to you that uh, I'm not sure. But in the hermetic philosophy, we don't have to be sure. What we do is we have our tradition and we have our ways of believing. And to us, beliefs beliefs is a tool. And we decide if this is a tool that we want to believe in and we'll use belief as a tool. Now, let me give you an example of this from my personal experience. And I, I, I had a lady friend years ago very bright, very, very um, talented, and um, still really bright and talented, too, by the way. And uh, she and I went to a lecture by my friend Pat Zaleski, and Pat was holding forth on, among other things, reincarnation. Well, this young woman uh, was one of these uh, very bright completely cynical, atheistic, um, rational humanist, whatever you want to call it. Uh, And she became very uncomfortable listening to Pat talk about reincarnation. And when we left the lecture and went out to drive home, she um, snapped at me. She said, why do you people believe in reincarnation? And I said, well, you know, really, the universe is so vast, so so absolutely amazingly vast. It goes on beyond our imagination. How many billions of stars and all of this, it all seems to work together and hang together and 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 and, and it's just amazing the way, the way it it, it functions. So, based upon that, uh, I assume that there is a wonderful, all-powerful, mysterious God force there somehow or other. And, and so, I agree to believe that. I, you know, I kind of think maybe that's the way it is. And and I kind of feel like maybe I can get in touch with it. Really good feeling. And and so I get in touch with it and. And I've got this consciousness, and I, if I ask this great God force that I'm in touch with and in tuned up with, if, if, if I'd like to, you know, when I pass on, I'd like to keep going and keep, keep working and keep doing things and keep going. And I figure that if I ask him or her or it or whatever, if I ask, if I ask for it, maybe I'll get it because God is capable Obviously, he's capable of giving it to me. I mean, look at what he's done with the universe. I mean, it's absolutely huge. It, 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 it goes on forever, and it all works. And so he's perfectly capable of giving me another life if I ask him. But if I don't ask him, then maybe he won't. Maybe he figures, well, I don't want it, so I'll you know, give it to him. So it can't hurt to ask, can it? Well, the result of that was she got mad at me. And she said, you're just... She said, you're, you're, you're too clever. You're just too clever. Oh, gosh. Well, maybe I was too clever. I, I, uh, but that's the way I feel. I feel that, that, uh, that reincarnation is 
I think, the natural way of things because consciousness, I believe, goes on. And and uh, we certainly have these cycles uh, that we go through. And so we, we believe in reincarnation because it gives us a purpose beyond just this lifetime. It gives us a long track. It gives us a form of immortality. And why shouldn't we ask for that? Because, like I said, if we don't ask for it, maybe we won't get it. Well, if you don't want it, don't ask for it. I personally want it. Um, now, I think the Buddhists do too. You know, they say they don't, but they say that what they really want to do is get off the wheel, but they keep taking these bodhisattva vows and sorts. <laughs> I think they want it too. Anyway, uh, this, this idea of, of consciousness going on, that needs to be explained. And it needs to be explained. You may not, you may not ex- accept this without a lot of work. But if if you do work at it, and if you do keep working at it, eventually you'll be able to grok this concept. Now, what I mean by grokking, in case maybe a term dates me, that's a hippie term. I think it comes from Stranger in a Strange Land. Uh, when you grok something, you intuitively stand it and make it yours. It's not just something you intellectually understand. It's not just something you intellectually accept. When you grok something, your consciousness encompasses it, and you make it yours. So one of the major objects of doing all this uh, work on the tree of life and climbing the tree of life and doing all in, doing all our hermetic work, memorizing all of our correspondences and working our magical rituals and all of this, one of the main object of this is to where we will grok this extended, never-dying consciousness idea. And here's how it works. You are the only person who has, knows that he or she has consciousness. Most of us live somewhere behind our third eye, you know, and somewhere inside our head. And some of us live down the chest and, well, I had a, well, I'm not going to mention that. But anyway, most of us live somewhere in the head, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the middle of our own head and mind and whatever. And that consciousness... That consciousness is nowhere else. No one else is. You don't know that anyone else has it. You 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 are looking at the world through your eyes, and you're feeling the world and with your hands, and you're experiencing the world, and you and you're the only one who is. All of these other people, including your mother and your father and your brothers and everything else, they are all they are all outside of you. They, they, you don't really know that they have a conscience. You assume they do. And you assume they have the same um, consciousness experience that you do. But you, but you are the only one you know. This is, this is a concept that an only child can grasp easier than someone who grows up with a bunch of squabbling siblings. So only children have an advantage in this respect. 
But even so, even a person with a lot of brothers and sisters and, and, and all, if they could find the privacy and the, and the tranquility to meditate on this, they can discover it. Now, the first person that we know of who really, really developed this, this awareness and concept was an ancient Greek philosopher by the name of Parmenides. And curiously enough, he was a mystic, and he was very much a mystic, and he became aware of this individual consciousness. And he said that the only things you knew were what you could perceive and, and, and nothing else, and, and you yourself were all you really were aware of. And you weren't even sure that what you were looking at and what you were doing, that that was real. All you knew was that you were you. And from this, by the way, the entire structure of modern logic derives from this very strange, at least at the time, magical concept of individual consciousness being the only thing that you are sure of. Now, Parmenides developed this idea, and Empedocles and others, the pre-Socratian philosophers, those in in the era of Pythagoras, they developed this. And this is the beginning, by the way, of what we call hermetic science or hermetic art was this kind of philosophy. It owes something to the Orphic. That's the idea of the spirit ascending into the stars, the celestial realms where it does, and going up the Milky Way to the pole star and beyond. Yes, it owes something to that, but uh, that owes something to hermetic science also. But primary thing importance of importance here is the individual consciousness. Here's the way this works, and this is what you will hopefully grok. And by your continual use and practice of the hermetic arts and your development of the hermetic system, you're working toward grokking this concept that your consciousness, you are the center of the universe, wherever God is, and you, we are virtually certain, and we believe, or we believe for the sake of believing, that every one of us is ensouled with an equal spark of divinity, right? Now, if you're, you, that spark of divinity is inside you, and right in the center of your consciousness, and you're the only one that's there, then you are literally at the center of the universe. Whole universe, yeah, you're the center of it. Because you're the only one that's there with that little spark of divinity. And that spark of divinity, we assume, obviously, is in everybody. And the awareness of it isn't in everybody, but it's in everybody. And it can't be quantified or qualified. You can't say, well, I have more God than you do. I might have more awareness of God than you do. But how do you quantify or qualify God? You say, I've got a bigger spark of God than you have. No, you can't say that. But you can say, 
or you could at least, but don't say it. Don't say it too arrogantly. Try to be humble about it because you got to realize that even though you're you're the center of the universe, you're God, and you're the eyes of God, the ears of God, the hands of God. And even so, that's all true. But God, it's God in totality is so much vaster than you that, and so much more powerful than you. And there are there are simulacrums of you or reflections of you out there, human and more than human, that are vastly more intelligent and more capable and more even more spiritually developed than you are. And you better realize that. Don't fall, please, if you accept this concept. Do not fall into the error of the Weishaupt's Illuminati and come up with this idea that there is no God but man, which, by the way, Crowley grabbed a hold of. And Crowley's problem was really, Crowley was so intelligent. I mean, here was a man who could four chess four good chess players at the same time and beat all of them simultaneously. So Crowley never could find anybody that he thought was smarter than he was, and so consequently he could think that he was... Maybe he could. I mean, I'll forgive him for that, because, I mean, he really was. He was ferociously intelligent. Fortunately for me... I couldn't even meet one good chess player, so, so and, and you know, and, and, and so I know there are much smarter, much smarter, much more intelligent people out there than I am. So it's so it's easier for me to be humble, and it's easier for me to to realize that this vast intelligence, this vast, this vast God form, this mighty force in the universe, is something that I am totally in awe of. And someone once said that that fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Well, that is certainly ought to be true. But if, it's, if it's not true, it ought to be. So, uh, the but the important thing here is for all of this humility that we know we must have in the face in the face of the vastness of the universe and and the and the phenomenal genius of humankind and all the rest of this, what we must remember is that we still, you yourself, me, you, and everybody who knows this, is aware of it, is at the center of the universe. And everybody who is aware of this and is aware of their consciousness, their own consciousness, is immortal. Because consciousness doesn't die. Consciousness goes on. And one of the things that you will learn to do in the process, in order to prove this to yourself, in the process of the hermetic uh, work, is to uh, take your consciousness and take it outside the body. And once you do that, you, you, you prove yourself. Consciousness doesn't die, it goes on. And that's what we mean by immortality. This is, by the way, I said I would, uh, when we talk about Eliphas Levy's statement, death is man's way of conquering immortality. Well, when you first read that, it sounds like uh, a cute little repartee, you know. Oh, yeah, death is man's way of conquering immortality. That's what it sounds like. It sounds like a, a quip. No, it's not a quip. Because if you look deeply into this little statement, you realize that Levy was aware of the great secret. Death is man's way of conquering immortality. Because when you conquer something, you 
make it yours. So, we're going to follow the path of death. We're going to understand death or try to understand death. Or we're going to come to a to our understanding of death, which we're going to accept whether or not that's actually what death is. It doesn't uh, matter that much, providing we uh, come to an elegant, hermetic understanding of it. And uh, this takes a little bit of a... A little bit of um, explaining. An old rabbi once said that God is ineffable and everything else is man's cleverness. Well, that's true. Because once you achieve this enlightenment uh, that we're discussing here, this, this complete awareness, you have grokked that you're the center of the universe. You've grokked that your consciousness is eternal. You've grokked all of this. You've made it yours. At that point, you realize that everything else you thought you knew, you don't know. You realize that everything else you thought you discovered, you thought you knew, uh, it's, you don't know. They're just operative concepts, that's all. You don't be sure of them. You don't know that you're going to reincarnate. You know your consciousness is going to go on, but you don't know you're going to reincarnate. You don't know you're going to... Uh, uh, somehow or other have some reward for what you've done. Anyway, you, you don't know anything. All you know is you're immortal. You know that. You know your consciousness is going to go on. And it's just like this is represented by the idea of, and I think we discussed this before, where they place them. They used to place the fool down at the bottom of the tree. Tarot card, the fool. And then the golden dawn, you know, in some inspiration, they moved it up to the top of the tree. Well, now, if we have the fool down at the bottom of the tree, and we also have the fool up at the top of the tree, well, down at the bottom of the tree, we have the arch fool. And at the top of the tree, we have the pure fool. pure fool doesn't know anything, but he's enlightened. He's up there. He's he's right on his way to Kether. He's, uh, he's the, the pure fool. That's the meaning of the fool being way up there. And that's what I mean, is when you when you finally get this, what we call enlightenment, you really realize you don't know anything. You don't know anything except that you're immortal. And that's really a nice thing to know. So, if we know that we're immortal and we're going to go on, then the next question is, where are we going to go? And is there anything we can do to influence where we might go and what we might do? And, um, you know, uh, can we be what the, what the um, Orientals refer to, uh, the Tibetans refer to as toku? The um, Mongolians refer to that as a toku as a hutuktu. And there's a Mongolian joke about that, but I don't think I'm going to go into it right now. But anyway, uh, the Hutoku, or the Hutuktu, is one who decides where he's going to go and what he's going to do in the next incarnation. And so, how do we here in the West accomplish the same thing? Well, there's an answer to that, too. In the East, and the Tibetans especially, and the Mongolians have a 
system, very, very ancient system, called Kala Chakra. It's the wheel of time, and chakra being wheel and Kala being time. And this initiation, which I fortunately received a, a nine-day program from the Dalai Lama, uh, but at the time, I frankly admit, I didn't really understand it. I had to... <laughs> I had to go over and over and over before I got some understanding of it. Um, the Dalai Lama goes about, and uh, not just the Dalai Lama, but Sakyatrizin and several other lamas, they, they go on and they give this basic, the basic initiation, there's more to it than just the basic, but they give the basic initiation to anybody literally who petitions for it, who wants it. Why do they do this? Well... Our friend Andre Zavinsky, who wrote Red Shambhala, he he, uh, he said, "Well, we do this because it's it's political." And uh, I didn't quite understand that at first, but then I got to look at it again, and I thought Andre is correct. And the reason for that is this: that the main thing in the end of the Kala Chakra initiation, you have a ritual and take a bodhisattva vow that you will come back, that you when you when you pass on, you will be reborn in Shambhala and you will help the army and you will be a member of the army of the faith. Now Shambhala is unique idea of Shambhala is that it's the it's the Buddhist apocalypse. Didn't think they had an apocalypse, did you? Well, they do, and it's in and the Shambhala, the the uh, the faithful warriors of Shambhala will rise up from the underground kingdom when the faith is in danger, and they will sweep the world in the name of the faith, and we'll have a new age. Yeah, it's an apocalypse. And if you take a Kamachakra initiation, you have pledged yourself to join that. Now, that's part of the secret of being Toku or being Hutuktu or whatever. You know, that's, that's part of it. And let's say this. Let's say that if you really, if you really want to master death, at least according to our tradition and how we look at it, hey, well, we don't know anything. I mean, do we really know anything? We don't. We just have these techniques that we choose to believe because we they're elegant and they're they're traditional and we might as well believe them because if we want to, you know, it's better than not believing them than not getting them. So remember, go back to my conversation with the young lady who who said, uh, why do you people believe it? Well, we do because we like it. We like it. That's what we do. And we're hedging our bet and we're setting ourselves up. So here is what we do. The whole secret, and by the way, there's a certain group or organization that uh, would like to, uh, I don't want to name them, I don't even want to give you a hint as to who they might be, but they they offer something like this, and uh, they require uh, what their version of Bodhisattva does, and they call this a sort of, I won't even use the term they use, let's say they call it a method. But actually, we can give it to you, the secret of it, very, very quickly. If you want to know where you're going, then you have to know where you've been. 
And if you know where you've been, then you have a pretty good idea where you're going, and then you have to want to go there. And that's about what comes to. So going back to the idea that astrology is the bedrock of, of hermetic science, we want to know, we're looking at a horse, we're going to do horoscopes of our past lives. Yeah. We're going to want to know where we've been. And that'll tell us, in a sense, where we're going. We'll know more about ourselves. And then our past lives will be easier to recall. And then we get a good idea of what our purpose is. And you know, somebody once said that the whole purpose of life is to find out the purpose of life. And that gets right down to the idea of the one true will. What is your one true will? Find your true will and do it. Or as as Curly the Trail Boss said, find that one thing, boy. Find that one thing and do it. So that one thing is quite a spiritual aspect, too. It's not what your parents want you to do, and it's not what uh, what society wants you to do. It's what you are here to do. And your three guardian angels are, are a help in that regard. You know, you have one guardian angel that's your own, your ascended, and, and then you have one guardian angel that's the planetary ruler of your ascendant, and then you have your holy guardian angel who has been with you all through these incarnations and is independent of this, independent of the particular astrological aspects of your previous of your present incarnation. And so get all of this together, and then you can say that you have mastered death. Because death comes to everybody. As I said, Moat, the Grim Reaper, is not, he's sad, but not particularly grim. He's going to come to all of us. And what we need to do is to, is to take that, that opportunity to go ahead and, and with new vigor pursue the course that we know we are on. And that requires, of course, some sort of a bodhisattva bow, but you'll, you'll get to that when you get to it. And now, there's one other thing that I want to mention, and, and that, of course, is the nature of uh, Moat himself, that he is your guide. He's your guide. And if you're not, you're not going to to uh, fear him because he should not come, he won't come to you until he's supposed to. Now, this ought to give you a good idea of, of how we would, we would proceed getting through the path of death to reach Tipperath, and we've already discussed the symbolism of Tipperath. Now, um, next week, Next week we're going to we're going to try to have a very very interesting guest, and uh, I'm going to tell you exactly what it's going to be yet because we're not sure, are we? No, we're not. And but we we are going to see if we can if we can bring on a very very interesting guest next week. So be sure and tune 